Heaven has fallen on hard times. In Christian thinking, looking forward to heaven is no longer fashionable. Jeffrey Burton Russell observes in his book, Paradise Mislaid, heaven has been shut away in a closet by the dominant intellectual trends of the past few centuries. There are a number of reasons for this. To some, the idea of looking forward to going to heaven seems frivolous. They feel that it is an exercise in self-absorbed indulgence, a quest for pie in the sky, by and by. For others, notions of heaven are too abstract. It seems too wispy, not the kind of place that those who have only ever known flesh and blood would feel comfortable, let alone happy. Mark Twain speculated in Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven. Singing hymns and waving palm branches through all eternity is pretty when you hear about it in the pulpit, but it's as poor a way to put in valuable time as a body could contrive. Twain's skepticism has uncovered the root of the problem. Either our imagination is too small to truly grasp the things that occupy our time and attention in heaven, or our nature must be radically changed before we can even endure the experience, let alone enjoy it. It seems likely that both are probably the case. Admittedly, the few passages of Scripture that do speak of heaven are spare in detail, but those that exist suggest that their intent is not to provide us with a detailed travel brochure. They give the impression that a different order of things operates in heaven than the one that exists on earth. Heaven is a wonderful place, filled with glory and grace, the children used to sing in Sunday school. Yet some of the Bible's descriptions of heaven seem more unnerving than they do appealing, with their winged, many-eyed creatures. Yet we should not be surprised that the biblical snapshots of heaven seem so alien to us. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.12. If even the most basic aspects of heavenly reality are beyond us, how can we expect to grasp its full nature except by faith? Scripture speaks of heaven using the language of signs. The images seem fantastic, yet they refer to things we know. They describe animals, rivers, seas, and cities. There's an obvious reason for this, according to C.S. Lewis. Heaven is by definition outside our experience, but all intelligible descriptions must be of things within our experience, he writes. This is the way of all analogies. They use the known to explain the unknown. But this does not mean that scripture merely employs spiritual baby talk about these things. It is no accident that nature often evokes a sense of God in us. God has not made heaven like the earth so that we will be comfortable there. Rather, in making earth, God has vested it with a kind of beauty and glory that is an echo of his own. Just as God made Adam and Eve in his image, he has also put a reflection of himself in creation.
is not the earth, based on Jesus' words to Nicodemus, we can be sure that it is much more. Yet whatever beauty heaven may hold, it is certainly not less than the beauty of earth. Heaven is a location, not a mystical abstraction. The children's Sunday school song was right. Although heaven sometimes serves as a synonym for God in Scripture, it is also spoken of as a place. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught the disciples to ask that God's will would be done on earth, just as it was in heaven. In his speech in Acts 3.21, Peter describes heaven as a location when he says that heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Likewise, in Galatians 1.8, Paul gives this warning, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. In Paul's statement, heaven and God are clearly not synonymous. The angel comes from heaven, but not from God. Likewise, in John 3.13, Jesus asserts that he came from heaven. An old cliché complains that some people are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. But perhaps the problem is actually the opposite we are not heavenly-minded enough. In the opening of his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis observed that our problem is that we are far too easily pleased. What was true when he wrote this is even truer today. The church feels that it has outgrown the desire for heaven. A second reason heaven is no longer of interest to us is that we have grown impatient. A focus on kingdom theology has replaced an earlier generation's emphasis on the hope of heaven because it seems to have more practical value for the present. To dwell on heaven seems selfish, while working for the kingdom feels more missional. When Christians talk about heaven, they speak of going. When they talk about the kingdom, they speak of building. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site, N.T. Wright explains in his book, Surprised by Hope. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. He's not wrong in saying this. The earthly analogies scripture uses to describe the life to come indicate that it involves both continuity and reconstitution. The problem we have with being heavenly-minded is not that it is too removed from the concerns of earth. In a way, it's the opposite. Our idea of heaven is too vague to be of much use at all. Yet the scriptures, as sparing as they are on the subject, do speak of heaven and in concrete terms. For example, scripture indicates that heaven can be seen. John's description of heaven in the book of Revelation begins with an open door, a throne, and someone seated upon it. This language may be figurative, but it is concrete. 
Even if one is reluctant to take such things in their literal sense, the material quality of these images leaves us with a concrete impression. John goes on to speak of heaven in earthly terms when he writes of crowns, gates, walls, and in the final battle, even animals. At the center of it all, of course, is God. He is unseen, except in the person of Jesus Christ, who appears in John's vision not as the familiar but undescribed Jesus of Nazareth of the Gospels, but instead as a lamb. Or earlier in the book, Jesus appears in human but terrifying form. It seems clear that there is more to what John depicts than a photographic image. Once again, while the image as a whole may seem strange, its individual parts are not. We have seen and heard all these things. We know the color of bronze and the heat of a furnace. We've heard the sound of the waves as they crash upon the shore. We've seen the stars high overhead and know a sharp sword's intended use. The language does not need to be literal to leave us with an impression of the heavenly reality. This is the key to laying hold of the Bible's idea of heaven. We do not need a travel brochure with pictures and maps. A more literal description might capture the sights and sounds and still fall far short of the true nature of the experience. It's no surprise, then, that when it comes to thoughts of heaven, we are more easily captivated by the words of poets and storytellers than the theologians. A sermon may make us ponder, but a golden sunset will make us weep with longing. We think we would prefer prose so that we might understand what heaven will be like, but what we really need is something more akin to fantasy. I'm not saying that heaven is a fantasy. It is as real and literal as a chair. But its reality is so fantastic that the literal does not seem to be able to do it justice, at least not on this side of eternity. But now comes the really strange thing. If the biblical writers are an example of how we must talk about heaven, it seems that the figures and terms of the literal world are essential to conveying its fantastic nature. It's no accident that those who speak of heaven even in the scriptures, more often than not, describe it in earthly terms. They speak of the people and things we know. It would seem, then, that we are not earthly-minded enough. Or rather, it might be better to say, our problem is that we are not thinking about earthly things in the right way. Like the door which stood open in heaven for John in the Apocalypse, the natural world is often a gateway to anticipating the world to come. Not because the two are identical, but because the latter's imprint is upon the former. John Lennon famously sang, Imagine there's no heaven. But scripture admonishes us to do the opposite and employs earthly images to help us understand its nature and to long for it. In her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard writes of a girl who had been blind since birth until an operation restored her sight. After her doctor removed the bandages, he led her into a garden where the girl stood in speechless wonder before a tree which she could only describe as the tree with the lights in it. Dillard writes that she sought to capture this same vision for herself as she walked along Tinker Creek. Then one day, when she wasn't even trying, she suddenly came upon it. 
or rather, I should say, it suddenly came upon her, since she was not really thinking about it at the time. Dillard gazed at a cedar tree in the backyard, and suddenly everything was transfigured. I stood on the grass with the lights in it, grass that was holy fire, utterly focused and utterly dreamed, Dillard writes. It was less like seeing than like being for the first time seen, knocked breathless by a powerful glance. This is what it is like to imagine heaven. It is not so much a matter of seeing as it is one of being seen. We become aware of something far greater through sensible signs and veiled images. It's not the shape of heaven or the specifics of what awaits us there that we apprehend, but the real presence of the one who fills both heaven and earth. When Jesus asked the blind man he healed what he could see, the answer was that he saw men as trees walking. But when we capture a glimpse of heaven in the earthly images presented to us in scripture and through the reflected glory of what has been created, we see God walking, not like the trees of the garden, but among them. Thank you.